So I think Infinite Regress is a pretty decent episode that I'm not really sure I remember exactly what happened in it. I think that's a fair way to say it. It, 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 it. It's an episode because Jerry Ryan wanted to express a tiny bit more range and, okay, let's let her play a couple other characters and get out of that general zone of Seven of Nine. Because as, as much as I like Seven of Nine as a character, she has a very specific thing of notes and it's 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 a fun special effect to see her giggling and smiling and being a little girl. And... Again, I don't quite remember too many of the characters that are within her in this, and I think that's part of the problem. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's weird because I I don't necessarily think that the the act like the other personalities that are manifesting themselves in Seven are actually the point of the episode. You know, we, no, we covered no, uh, United States of Terra on our other yeah. podcast, tuning in uh, about a year ago. We finished that up, and and that's a television show that is very much about uh, the other personalities of the main character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As characters in the show, this is not that. I mean, certainly Jerry Ryan didn't have a ton of time, I would imagine, to establish yeah. these characters. Although I, I think. Think she does a pretty good job i also think it helps that that star trek has these broad yeah there are types that that actors can draw on oh i'm a vulcan now oh i'm a klingon now oh i'm a little girl now etc cetera, etc cetera. but i'm not really sure that infinite regress it's it's obviously trying to use the the multiple personalities to say something once again about how uncomfortable seven of nine has become with the idea of being part of the board collective and and it's all very well done and it's all very entertaining, but did we need yet another episode that was telling us that? I'm not sure. Yeah, I... I, I that is a fine theme that she... It, it is nice to check in that she still has this uh, feeling and that it is... I mean, I'd say this episode is further development of Seven of Nine. It is her... Uh, because certainly the subplot with Naomi, I think, is very crucial to this episode, and I think very crucial to Seven's development as a person. Um, I think it's nice for the work it does with the Seven and Tuvok dynamic, uh, because that is a dynamic that I very much like in this show. Again, it's another episode that I think is a really good filler episode, and I've said that a couple times this season, and... I'm not sure. I, I I think that might be a bad thing that I'm seeing a lot of very <laughs> well, good filler it, episodes because, I mean, certainly a very good filler episode is better than a bad filler episode, but I feel like... Well, I, I think Star Trek Voyager is, is kind of the Star Trek show that, that tries to answer the question, what if our entire series was made out of filler episodes? Now, that's not entirely fair, of course, because there are a lot of really good episodes in the show, episodes that have a lot of thematic resonance and emotional availability and all that kind of stuff. But I, I don't... Yeah, you're right. Like, this season has... I mean, I thought last week was quite good, although Timeless, I think, on... A critical examination is a little flat, doesn't really necessarily have a lot to say, is more showy than anything else. And I feel like Infinite Regress is in that kind of in that kind of mold is timeless where it's a it's a tour de force chance for Jerry Ryan to to really show her acting chops. She does a tremendous job. You're right that it does 
kind of put out there the idea of Naomi having a little bit of a relationship with Seven of Nine, a little bit of a mentor-mentee relationship, which I think is cute. Uh, and I think Tuvok as well, like Tuvok and Seven of Nine would, would either really get along or really hate each other. And it looks like they're going down the get along uh, path with that, which which I like because I don't think Tuvok really has any friends except for yeah. Janeway on this crew. But at the end of the day, like, again, it's just I'm watching an interesting plot. I'm not watching Seven of Nine act in a bunch of different weird ways, but it doesn't really add up to much. And you know, they do try and link it together with, once again, this idea that Seven of Nine is uncomfortable being in the Borg Collective. Yeah. But we are we already knew she wasn't comfortable being in the Borg Collective. She's been on the show for over a year at this point. It's time to move her yeah. into different directions, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, they, they... I'm worried that one of the logical conclusions of this theme is that Seven is going to be reborged for a while and they're going to have to undeborg her again. But, um, because it does seem like they're pushing her closer and closer towards being in the collective. Okay, we're going to put you in physical proximity to them at the season ender and have you pull away and do, do, do your damnedest to get out at the last second. Now we're going to sort of have you being a little bit more reintegrated in the collective and you'll pull away and we'll figure that out and we'll fix that. And I'm worried it's, that that's just going to escalate. I don't know. Right, because I mean like this already kind of happened with the Raven. Certainly yeah. not to the degree of, of of manifesting multiple personalities. It's a little bit different. But it, it does seem like each time that they come within spitting distance of Borg technology – Something about Seven of Nine is going to react to that piece of technology and is going to put them into danger. And that's fair. I I, I think that's a fine it's, device. And I don't think I don't think they overuse it too much, but it's still kind of like I don't know what the point of this is. Yeah, I mean it's the kind of thing where in real life, yes, the Borg would put twenty-five fail safes if uh somebody got deborged because and that makes sense. That is something they would do. That is totally in line with everything we know about the Borg, which is that when something is defeated, they put an extra layer on top of that. So yes, uh, but is it interesting to watch that from a dramatic standpoint, knowing that, okay, let's go into all of the black boxes on uh, uh, on Seven of Nine. Oh, we discovered another one, and this is how it's making things difficult this time. It gets a little... It gets a little redundant on the level of I'm more interested in conflict coming from Seven of Nine's particular psychology and philosophy rather than I am of the nanobots in her system being the – do you know what I mean? Like it, it – Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, what was interesting about it, Data was his tr- striving to be human, uh, not the fact that he can be reprogrammed whenever someone evil wants to reprogram him. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of putting Seven of Nine or or, or sort of, you know, diminishing her to her her constituent parts or something. And, you know, I I don't know. I mean, certainly, like you said before, you know, you mentioned Data. This is Seven of Nine is in a long tradition of Star Trek characters that can go awry and, you know, go haywire and take over the ship. This is not something that uh, uh, Star Trek has shied away from in the past. But I mean, 
like a perfect example is I'm not really sure where these multiple personalities were even coming from. It almost seems to to contradict how we have established the Borg in the past because the Borg like if you boil it down to its basis essence, right? The Borg are what? The Borg are not a species. The Borg are not a race. They are a culture. They are a society. They are defined by, you know, a, a collection of individuals that link together using cybernetics and cyborg parts in in a sort of, you know, collective of, 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 of unconsciousness, of consciousness even. And when you take that away, when you detach a, an individual Borg drone from the collective, are they Borg anymore? And, and, and Voyager is the show that's going into that more and more. But now we have this idea that somehow personalities are actually kept in the memory of each yeah. individual, which also doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I right? mean, it's it's brushed against that any time uh, Seven of Nine draws from her, her Borg knowledge, right? Like she, a lot of times she does say, oh... Well, I learned such and such when I was in the Borg, and all Borg know about this, and we have to assume that she has retained their mem- her, those memories in her human brain rather than it being some kind of distributed me- memory module kind of thing. In other words, I think the experience of being a Borg is that you have y- your memories as a person, but then you need to change a light bulb and so you kind of link up with somebody who knows how to change a light bulb and you download that part to your brain i guess they have done some to establish that once you tap that knowledge you have it in your brain forever it's as if you actually learned it but see part of the problem is that it's implied that these personalities are people that seven herself had assimilated or had a role in their assimilation or were, was on the mission or something, uh, which is a theme that the show has touched upon. I'm specifically thinking about the episode where uh, she claimed to be raped and then everybody was like, silly lady, that doesn't happen. Um, one of the issues that I had had of the episode is that they didn't fully go into something that they touched upon, which is that Seven is beginning to realize that – and. As part of her time in the Borg, she did. She was responsible for many horrible things happening to people. And so it does make sense to have this episode be kind of the consequences of those actions by her, in a way, being visited by the ghosts of the people she killed. I can see that being a really cool uh, element. My issue is that all of the people that we meet in this episode are Alpha Quadrant personalities, and Seven of Nine lived in the Delta Quadrant. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there's a couple different directions to take that. I, I, I think number one, of course, is that part of the issue with this is that the idea of Seven of Nine containing all of these different personalities somehow, and... I, I think thematically on a metaphorical level, I'm I'm certainly okay with and get the idea that Seven of Nine is essentially being haunted by the ghosts of her murder victims. Uh and, and if you want to hand wave away the, the scientific parts of it, then then fine. But at the same time, it does need to be a little more justified. I don't know, it's it's a hard line to walk. I guess it's like if the episode worked better for me, I wouldn't care so much about yeah. it. But because the episode doesn't work that well for me, I question it. 
and and maybe that's not fair i don't know but it it does seem that that seems to be what's happening and like then, i feel like i would make a i would like this episode a lot better if she were manifesting herosians and vidians and other people that we had met in the delta quadrant but she is yeah manifesting Vulcans and Klingons. And yes, that is something that certainly as a member of the Borg Collective, the Borg Collective has come into contact with those. Seven of Nine would know those, but unless they truck her to the Alpha Quadrant and then back to the Delta Quadrant, she's been all over the galaxy, it doesn't make any sense for her to have encountered those species before her. Yeah, it does, and then also I I think you're right that it's a missed opportunity to to sort of like establish once again the the most important Delta Quadrant species, or at least the ones that we know. And you know maybe it's just that the Alpha Quadrant species are so much easier for they're more an iconic actor to portray. Yeah, they're they're kind of they're more iconic. An actor can portray them in sketches. It's it's fairly easy to act like a Vulcan. It's fairly easy to act like a Klingon. Um, I am certainly not saying I could do it, and I am not a trained no, no. actor, but a trained actor could do it. But 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 <laughs> um, but, but you could also. I mean, if I was to do a uh, Klingon impression, I would just say it's not logical for me to do a Klingon impression. And that that there are certain code words that you know. You could go more blood wine, and you know you're doing a Klingon. Like it is very right. The costume is yeah. two ears, and that's a Vulcan. Right, exactly. And I think that I mean, maybe we just wouldn't be able to tell if they were a Vidian. It's true. Maybe we just wouldn't be able to tell if they were a Herogen. But, but she says, "Oh, what, uh, but 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 she hunches over and she starts talking about deals, and we instantly know she's doing a Ferengi, even before they it, say right. It. Exactly. Yeah. Because I mean, frankly, I mean that that. This episode, more than anything else, indirectly proves that they've never really established uh, any really strong alien cultures in the five years that, or the four and a half years that Voyager's been on so far. I mean, you talk a little bit about the phage, you talk about hunting, but we will know that because we've been watching every episode in a row. Uh, if you're, I, 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 at this point, the Vidians are so in memory that, uh, maybe more casual fans would not know what the hell is going on. You wouldn't remember that. Is that is very true, yeah. That is true. I mean, I think that if the idea is that the people watching the fifth season of Star Trek Voyager, not the people that were watching season one, but they are people that watch Star Trek, then sure. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. No. I think it's some to some degree, I, I think it's just that they're easier to portray. But the other part of it is that I'm not really happy with the direction that Star Trek Voyager is taking the Borg in. Mm. And and what I mean by that is they are really becoming an all-encompassing threat that can very easily move you know across the galaxy in a, in the blink of an yeah. eye if we are to take the the idea that 7 of 9 as a drone was instrumental in 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 uh, uh, assimilating you know, a Vulcan, a Klingon, uh, uh, a, you know, a, a Ferengi, all of these alien species that we only know from the Alpha Quadrant, then that means by definition that Seven of Nine went to the yeah. Alpha Quadrant as a drone. And if that's the case, why haven't the Borg taken over the entire galaxy? Why is there still space in the Delta Quadrant that is free of Borg? Yeah, I mean, the the implication from back in Next Generation from, uh, it, it was a Q-Who where they meet the Borg for the first time, yeah. um, is that 
be, be, because that the events of that provoke the Borg. The the Borg would not have gotten to the Alpha Quadrant for a very long time, would not have noticed them. Q pokes them. They come to the Alpha Quadrant. That's when Wolf 359 happens. That's all of that. The 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 understanding that I got from that is so the so the Borg start maybe even from out of the galaxy. They may not even originate in the Milky Way, but they come into the galaxy, let's say at the very edge of the Delta Quadrant. And they are little by little, system by system, very methodically tagging every single species that they can, that they come across, and they are doing this, it, they're Borg, they are doing it mm-hmm. in the most patient, methodical, organized, and efficient manner they can. They are not going all across the galaxy, because the Borg have all of the time in the world. They don't need to be assimilating any species in any particular order. They want to catch them all, and it doesn't really matter. So it does not make any sense for them to be jumping from quadrant to quadrant to quadrant to quadrant, uh, because that's very inefficient. That is a poor use of resources. That spreads them too thin. They better get what's nearby, unless a situation like you who happens where they are provoked. So yeah, right. uh, unless the other implication is that Seven was at the Battle of War- Wolf 359, is that possible? I thought. I guess. I mean, I, I, I don't know, but there was only one cube in that entire battle, so that would, and it was destroyed yeah. at some point. So I would think no, but but who really knows? Yeah, and I, I guess mean, it's kind of. I mean, more more than anything else, I think what this conversation really implies or, 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 or sort of demonstrates is that this episode doesn't really have a lot of meat to it. Like we're we're having this like far ranging conversation about the Borg and the culture and the society of the Borg because. I don't know what I mean. Seven of Nine has some acting chops, and yeah. she can act weird, and that's about it. I, you know, we're not really learning anything about her personality, and we're not really learning about any of the other crew. I was really waiting for this to be a moment where uh, Seven of Nine and Janeway talk about Wolf Three Five Nine because I mean, there's that one comment that Janeway has where, "Oh, coffee! I beat the Borg with it." Like she was at Wolf Three Five Nine. She's a veteran of that battle and i think she and you know she and seven have never talked about that and they can have a really interesting conversation about that and again that's un- interesting i always I, ne- I never thought janeway was at wolf 359 i'm not saying you're wrong i just i always took that line to indicate just just as an indication of the events of like scorpion but your interpretation is valid too i that's interesting yeah, I don't know. It just seems like the kind of thing like your grandpa would say, oh, I beat the Nazis with a bu- with just, oh, I was fueled by coffee and cigarettes. Like, it seems like that kind of thing. And racism. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, 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 I guess I don't think Scor- of Scorpion as beating the Borg in the same way that 359 was, but either way. That also well to be clear to be clear Wolf three five nine was a route for the Federation so they they the Borg weren't really defeated at Wolf three five nine either uh, no not fair um I yeah maybe not three five but but she was involved in the you 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 do realize it's been so long since uh watching Best of Both Worlds that I don't have as clear of a handle on the plot events as I should but. It also is and see, some. Every, everyone's. I, I like this because this is a clear indication that I am still the the Ur-Trekkie here. Because you have seen Best of Both Worlds once. I have seen it. Oh, I know. Twenty times. I don't know. So yeah, yeah. That's that's funny. Well, 
it's time to wrap this back around to to the idea of the episode, right? That uh, we have this alien species that once again the Borg have decided they want. They completely decimate very quickly, and they they have a very novel approach for getting the getting the Borg. And I think it's an interesting approach. I I guess for me, what it comes down to is that there's a lot of elements in this episode that if if they had picked one and really dived into it, yeah, I think that. It, this would have been a really good episode, but I like Voyager, but a lot of times, and I think infinite, infinite regress is a perfect example of the type of episode I'm talking about. Voyager is much more interested in breaking a story and the mechanics of the plot. Yeah. And, and being an entertaining show to watch that it, it, it just, it loses a little something. And there are some nice things here. I think that the mind meld scene in particular is quite good. Um, you know, I, I, I like the Naomi and seven stuff a lot. I think it's really cute at the end when seven asks Naomi to, to teach her how to play, uh, that game. I think it's it's, obviously setting something up for the future. It's a nice thing because that's kind of the next step in seven of nine's development, right? Like she's gone through her childhood and adolescence. She has graduated into, to adulthood after the events of the finale, um, and now the next step is for some for her to be a role model for somebody else to kind of pass on what she's learned. Uh, I think it's cute that she has a little sister. Um, I think I kind of love Naomi that she gets this – she suddenly has this bug where she's going to be the captain's assistant and, you know, that's what I'm going to do. And, and nothing is goddamn going to stop this girl and good for her. <laughs> And and I will say not not to not to spoil you know too much about what's coming down the road with Voyager, but this is one of the reasons that I like the Brown and Braga seasons, seasons five and six, so much is that you know Naomi Wildman was a character that was established all the way back in the first yeah. season when her mother told, came to Janeway and said she was pregnant, but they never really did anything with the character until Brown and Braga came on, ran the show, and said, "Hey, wait a second, we've got this." Uh, you know, we've got this child out there that we've never really seen or had anything with. I mean, we're only eight episodes into the season, and we've already had Naomi yeah. Wildman have, you know, one of her own episodes, really, and then appear again in this episode in a pretty prominent part. I mean, to and, be fair, you know, well, to be fair, part of that is a baby is not as interesting. A little girl is a little more interesting in terms of having a personality, although she was certainly there in the episode where Neelix dies and all of that, and. That's kind of an isolated appearance of her. Uh, They could have certainly done this many episodes a year earlier. It's true. It yeah, because I think that that if you can say that there, I mean, we'll talk about this later on, of course. But I think if you can say, and and if there's any defining characteristic of the Brian and Braga years of Star Trek Voyager, it's that the show remembers that it's okay to have recurring characters. Yeah. Okay. I, I. And and we will we will see what happens with that down the line. Well, just two little moments. Uh, one is Janeway and Chakotay time, uh, because Janeway does kind of second guess herself a slight bit. They're talk they're talking about this, and she does not. It, Janeway mentions that when I first had Seven of Nine on board, you were not you did not think it was possible to rehabilitate a Borg, and now we're dealing with. Uh, the pull of the Borg again, and what if this is going to keep happening? What what if it was a bad idea? And you know, Chakotay does say, "No, I've changed my mind. I've you know come to see her progress. I 
she is a very valuable member of the crew. She is, uh, you know, this is a success. This is just another bump in the road. Uh, I think the doctor calls it a rough spot, and that kind of seems to be where Chakotay is going. But I think that is an important note in why Chakotay does kind of say, well, you're the captain. That's a great idea if you think it is, because I think he has also come to realize that and again, this is this version of Chakotay, which doesn't necessarily follow everything that's happened in the show. Uh, but I think he comes to trust that, oh yeah, Janeway will make the right decision. Janeway will make the decision that will get us out of here. I don't know. Yeah, no, I like that. I mean, I, I, I do think that that's a really, really nice scene. And I think it's a type of scene that the episode, frankly, could have used more of. You know, it it, it works on our understanding of the characters' backstories, our understanding of their histories and how they kind of get along with each other. And it, it's not oversold. It's very, very nicely played by both actors. And it's it's just a nice little scene. You know, it's, an, it's, a, it's a scene that says, hey, you've been paying attention to, to this show. We're going to yeah. reward you with a nice little scene. And I, it's, it's, yeah, it's good. Yeah. And, you know, of course, Chakotay does have a particular authority in that since he was borged for a little bit and he knows what it's like again going with the the metaphor that i've used a couple of times which is that uh you know think of seven of nine as somebody who is a drug addict who's now getting clean uh can 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 she pull her life together and make something of herself or 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 not and I think the initial version of Chakotay is somebody who's saying, you know, no, I, I, I've had heroin once and it's amazing and I have so much willpower and I, you know, I can't even completely resist the siren call. Somebody who was actually in that life will never be reformed. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Seven of Nine being a refutation of that, I think. I also re- – the, the line that I cracked up at, though, is that when um, – Janeway gets the call that uh, Seven of Nine has attacked Bellana. She says, oh, God, have they come to blows? Like, like she's just been expecting the two of them to have finally have that fight eventually. And that just thinking that it's just the two of them being Seven and Bellana and that just some and Bellana's temper finally got the better of her. I just think that's an amusing image. <laughs> yeah, that is for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we'll leave Infinite Regress there. But before we move on to the next episode, Nothing Human, I do just want to take a quick opportunity to remind you that this podcast is supported by you, the listener. If you like what we do and have some extra money each and every month, you can go to patreon.com slash trekaboutshow and give now. Okay, so I have a very important question regarding Nothing Human that uh, finally the penny dropped for something for me, uh, which is I'm going to ask you this question. Why do non-humanoid alien species in Star Trek never wear any clothes? He was wearing clothes. No, he wasn't. Yes, he was. That shell thing, that fin thing, those were clothes. Those were clothes? (laughs) No, it's his body, but how do you know? How do you know what alien clothes look like? Look, I'm just saying, (laughs) Species 8472 is naked, the Horda is naked, this thing is naked. The crystalline entity is naked. The crystalline entity is naked, the the, the alien jellyfish, space jellyfish from Encountered Farpoint, naked. What is Star Trek trying to say about the inherent 
personhood of non-humanoid species. I'm just thinking about, you know, that if a dog would wear pants, would they wear them like this and it shows something really stupid? Or would they wear them like this and it makes shows the sensical way a dog would wear pants? Well, I'm imagining all of those species we just mentioned wearing jeans in that way. Also, it that, I, I hate that because <laughs> um, a dog wouldn't wear pants because pants don't make sense if you have four legs. Anyway... That is that is beside the point. Uh, I think this episode is is actually kind of bad, but I <laughs> kind of love it. <laughs> I mean, it's no go. It, it 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 it's it's the poor man's version of duet. Yeah, it's Jerry Jerry Taylor, not Jerry Ryan. That would have been very interesting. Jerry Taylor wrote this episode, yeah, and. You know, she had she had not left, of course, entirely by this point. Uh, she was no longer show running the show, but you know, she wants to come back and write a script or two. I don't think they're yeah. going to tell her no, and obviously they didn't. Um, I I think that this episode is very interesting because at first glance, it looks like it's going to be a, a stupid Voyager episode, which is a type of Voyager episode <laughs> that we have had many many times before. I'm thinking of episodes like Threshold, for instance. Um, but then it takes a really hard left turn and goes into some really like, you know, hoary sort of medical ethics questions and talking about the Cardassian occupation of Bajor. Yeah. And I'm not really sure that that we not necessarily needed Star Trek Voyager to do that because, well, Deep Space Nine exists. Yeah. But I think it's pretty good. I mean, it's nothing special, but it's it's it handles it well. And I think it finds... I actually think it finds a, a a a different take on it than Deep Space Nine would have come away with. Yeah, um, my main issues with this episode are very uh, nitpicky in some ways. In that, I feel there are a lot of situations which make this particular medical debate a little less relevant, given that. Uh, I mean, I know everything that they're doing is for their own conscience and just the ship is a world in itself at this point. Uh, and what they do, what what happens outside doesn't matter as much. But we can assume that uh, Krell's research is as widely available in the Alpha Quadrant. If, they, if Voyager has no record of him being the Cardassian Dr. Mengel, uh, I don't know if that's widely known in the Alpha Quadrant, too. It's implied that he is still has an active career. And and the way that science works in where prog- progress really builds upon everything else, and this is a whole holistic web, and I'm not sure if one can directly separate the work which was done on these patients from... In other words, how do we know that... Krell is necessarily using research that he got from experimenting on this patients in this particular case and not just his extraordinary breadth of scientific knowledge because it's implied that while his methods are brutal, he has learned from a lot of different ways. I mean, certainly there is some research in – certainly there is a streak in his research that was not made through through Bejor and experimentation, Right. I, I would think so. I, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point. But I, I do think that, that part of what's interesting about this episode is that, you know, if we go back to, to Deep Space Nine for a minute and we kind of think back to how that series and how that show 
went into the Bajor, the, the Bajoran occupation, yeah. right? And, and and kind of really developed it and, and went down a road of talking about the the Cardassians are essentially Nazis. They are, you know, horrible, horrible atrocities, concentration camps, Cardassian doctors like Karl Masset who are experimenting on Bajorans, you know, all kinds of really, really slavery, you know, all kinds of horrible things going on. This was This was not a good time. And when Deep Space Nine starts... And and even going back to to the first appearance of the Bajorans in TNG, you know, certainly I think the idea there was was there was a kernel of an idea which was, well, the Cardassians occupied Bajor. What does that mean? And and what that means over the course of the Deep Space Nine got you know more and more and more and more and more and more horrible, right? Until you know, it, it, it essentially became a, a you know a, a, an allegory of Nazism, as I said earlier. And Voyager left two years after, yeah. or one year after the the beginning of Deep Space Nine, and so there there was really there there would yeah. not have been as much of an understanding of the horrors of the Bajoran occupation amongst the Voyager crew. No, it's true. Uh, if- that is something the historical record really developed in a, in, a, in a different way while they were gone. So in a sense, they are having to do all this groundwork for them. Now, of course, we never had a Krell Misset episode of Deep Space Nine, so so we don't actually know if if he is also uncovered as, you know, Dr. Mengele. Yeah. But, but the- I, like, I like that Voyager is doing it, and I like that Voyager is... What I like about this episode is that it's saying Voyager's crew is smart. Like, they're not going to fall for this. And, you know, yes, it is a little convenient that there's suddenly this Bajoran Maquis Starfleet crew member that we've never seen before and huh. we'll never see again. I was wondering but, that you know, because, as you mentioned, you know, Braga realized it's okay to have recurring characters. I didn't know if he would be a recurring character because he is fine to appear as just somebody that Bellana tells to do a thing from time to time. Yeah, that that would be good. And he also had a very particular way of speaking, which was kind of off-putting. But <laughs> I mean, but I don't know. Are you are you are you are you with me? Are you no? Not with that me? What, what are you thinking? That actually does make some sense to me because um, I mean, I know in real life, for example, everyone knew the Nazis were bad, and it wasn't until towards the end of the war and afterwards, and even afterwards, that the news of what exactly happened in a concentration camp filtered out to the average person on the street uh in 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 America and you know certainly as and certainly as trials went on as these things happened more and more details did come out and we can assume that voyager left before the details really did come out and it may it very well may be common knowledge at this point in the Alpha Quadrant what uh Krell Masset did, and I think there is possibly an understanding from Voyager that well the Federation and Starfleet back in the Alpha Quadrant is going to look at this research and make the same decision. We have to we cannot in good conscience follow this, and we must do what we can to not benefit from this as as we can. I I it is the equivalent of – and again, there is a there are elements of – it doesn't really matter what the outside world is doing. We are on Voyager. We have to think about what we are doing, and we cannot in good conscience make this decision for themselves. If somebody else makes a different decision, that's their business, but this is our business. 
Yeah, I was I was about to say, I mean, I, and I'm glad you said that because I, I think that's key to understanding this episode that they don't have the luxury of not using this guy's research. Yeah. Now, of course, I think that if they had gone into this knowing this, they never would have created this Krell missing yeah. hologram. Um, and incidentally, I do find it funny that uh, Tom Paris tried to get Kim to do exactly what he did in this episode. Yes! And he came away saying it was impossible. In this episode, he's like, yeah, whatever. Let me just do it. It'll take five minutes. But hey, whatever. He spent uh, the time again, in... Then she... He spent the time in between uh, learning how to do it, let's say. Yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, what else is he doing? Um, probably masturbating while playing the clarinet. I don't know. Libby, uh, Libby, Libby! <laughs> But but I, I I like that it it really does lay bare the idea and it's not it's it's very subtle about it. You know, this is not an episode that is beating you over the head with yet another speech from Janeway about how they're alone yeah. in the Delta Quadrant that they probably wouldn't have used this research if they had known when they went into this. But they don't have the luxury of going to high warp and sending Balana off to a medical starbase. Yeah. You know, they, they have to do what they have to do. If they lose their chief engineer, that is going to be a severe setback for them. Now, of course, I'm sure that Seven of Nine or someone else could step in. But, you know, they already said in a previous episode that I think they, they've lost like 20 crew members or something and it's only been four years. That's not a good... Uh, you know that's not a that's not a good average, and and so once once the decision was made with incomplete evidence to create this yeah. this set hologram, Janeway makes the decision. You know what? We got to use it. Yeah, got to get our chief engineer back, and then we'll get rid of it. Well, she really leaves it up to the doctor, who I think does make the right choice. But yeah, it's... because I mean, Krell has that line at the end, like. Oh, your ethics go out the window when you need something when you need this. And I think that is exactly the reason that doc the doctor decides to delete him because he does recognize that in a way the temptation is too great. You have something which is going to help you in very dire situations, but it's at the cost of your soul and we can say I mean, let's go back to the heroin addict metaphor. You can say, I'm never, ever, ever going to do that. But there will be a weak moment of temptation, and he knows that will happen as long as this thing is on the ship and it needs to be removed. It's too yeah, – no, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because and I think that, that once again – I mean, this is a good example of a Voyager episode that has a lot going on, but it all kind of works together very nicely yeah. as opposed to the episode we just finished talking about. Because – it is the case that once again, this episode is is not really. It's not putting this idea out there as the point of the episode, but there is an implication here, of course, that does anybody have the right to delete the Chromoset character? You know, it, it is is he actually going to become something like the Doctor, or is he a tool? Yeah. And the Doctor having to make that decision is also very interesting because, in a sense, the Doctor is. Is, is doing the same thing that the real Chromaset did, which is the real Chromaset uh, did these horrible experiments on unwilling Bajorans to cure this Fotasta virus. The doctor used Chromaset's knowledge to cure Bellana Torres and then murders the holographic Chromaset. It's, it's not exactly the same thing, of course, 
Uh, I would even go so far as to say it's 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 a it's not immoral, but I do think it's a moral gray area, and I do think that it is set up to show us a parallelism there that is is smart. I think. Well, that is also I I, I think the closing of something from earlier in the episode when they're doing one of the simulation surgeries on the creature and uh, Krell is just gleefully cutting it open and the doctor's like, uh, I'm not, I, 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 we're going to hurt it. And uh, do you want to like give it a shot and know? Yeah. Like what's going on? Uh, and Krell is saying, it's just a hologram and the doctor's all, but where holograms too. I have a bit of empathy for this thing. I mean, he is at the point because he recognizes that there is a certain innocence in this creature. And, and definitely a lot of the episodes hinges on the fact that the crew recognizes this is a wounded creature that is making a desperate choice, possibly without the full understanding of what it's doing, and therefore, yes, the easy solution is how do we kill this thing, but we would like to find a solution as they do, which brings it back to its people and lets them cure it, and everybody recognizes, like, that was a weird situation, but okay, we we made a friend in that weird way that Star Trek sometimes makes friends with creatures that they don't understand and the, again the doctor refuses to hurt the simu- the, the doctor is squeamish about hurting the simulation of the creature because he recognizes that that is crossing a moral line and i think by the end he recognizes that there is no such innocence in the krelmaset uh hologram and that this this the, that krell is able to justify many kinds of things that he finds abhorrent and in a way it's almost an a, an execution it's almost a it is a the doctor by by divine fiat in the form of Janeway's uh Janeway's Janeway has given uh the doctor the authority to make this decision to make this judgment and i think i agree with the show I, I, I think you agree that he has that right uh, by virtue of his medical ethics, by virtue of being a hologram and several other things. And I think he does recognize that to – while this may be in a way killing a, a person, it is a much, much lesser evil than allowing this to continue and to profit from all of that suffering. It's a situation that – has two wrong answers and he has to choose the one that's less wrong. Yeah, no, I think that's right because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, as I said before, they, they've already created this, this hologram. They may as well use it. I mean, they're in an impossible situation. And at the same time though, I, I don't know if, and again, this isn't something that the episode puts out there uh, forthrightly, but I think there is at least an understanding on the doctor's part, and this may just be Robert Picardo's performance. I think his reaction to how Karel Masset is cutting into the holographic uh, non, non-humanoid non alien is, is a key moment as well. That for everybody else, the Karel Masset hologram is a Karel Masset hologram. It is a semacular, it, it is a, a, an automaton. It is not 
as dynamic as the doctor. The doctor is a person. The doctor can learn and grow and change. You know, the doctor has been activated for years at this point, and to delete the doctor would be to commit a form of murder, yeah. whereas Chromaset is a very interactive hologram, but he's still just a hologram. Now, I do think that, you know, so giving the doctor the the, the decision to, to murder Chromaset or not, or the hologram, is interesting because I think the doctor understands the full weight of his decision there. Yes, yeah, I, I I think so too. I guess what I don't love about the episode is that it doesn't give the opportunity for the Kralmaset hologram to learn the error of his ways and begin to figure out how to atone. I think that's an interesting thing. How do you, you know, here's a hologram who is not the entity that committed these atrocities, but is based on him, who will never expect to meet an actual Cardassian or a more than a handful of Bajoran crew members, and I think the weight of that guilt would be interesting. I don't know. And yeah, no, I, I think that's... Yeah, I mean... I, I see what you're saying. Maybe it would be more Star Trekky to have uh, Krell say, you know, I realize that what I've done was unconscionable and you can't use me anymore and you the temptation will be too great and he deletes his own program kind of a thing. I wonder if that would have been a satisfying ending to the episode. But I do recognize well... I do recognize that what Voyager is trying to do again is to have these to deal with that lesser of two evils from time to time. Yeah, and I, I, I think of like the most toys, right? From from the what is it, the third yes. or the fourth season of, of TNG where Data essentially decides to to kill that guy and yeah. he doesn't, but he made the choice to do it. And he doesn't because he's almost stopped by external forces. He makes his judgment. Right. Exactly. The the real key there is that data made the decision to murder someone, you know, and, and I think that's, this is taking that a step further that I think for the episode to really work, you know, if you had had Krellmas said, give this wonderful speech about how he's realized the error of his ways, et cetera, et cetera, delete my program. That would have been really hollow, I think. And I mean, yeah. you know, no pun intended. I, I think it needs to be the doctor making the conscious decision to delete Chromaset's program because otherwise no one has learned any lessons. It, it would be yeah. too easy for Chromaset to do that. It is uh, – do no harm is something that the doctor has said many times. It is a very dear credo to him. Uh, he gets upset at Krell saying that at some point uh, because he feels it's almost blasphemous and – this is a well, well, this is a moment where the doctor realizes that the right thing to do is to do this bit of harm because it has it's so much less harm than the alternative. Right. And and I think well number one, of course, is that uh they're only deleting chromosets. Yes, research from from Voyager. His his research is still out there in, in the in the universe. Uh, so so this is a, a pyrrhic victory in a sense. Yeah, it's a it's a victory for them, but it still is a pyrrhic victory. I think the the other part of that, which is which is very key to understanding the point of this episode, is you know, Krell said is a very he seems like a very nice guy. Yeah, you know, 
at first he seems very personable, very, very willing to, to listen to reason. Uh, seems like a very exciting, fun guy. The doctor wants to take him to opera, et cetera, et cetera. As were many of the but Nazis, start... he's very cultured and educated and polite. Yes. Right, right. He's very polite. But that do no harm scene is so interesting to me because, well, A, do you think Cardassian doctors take an oath to do no harm? I certainly don't. That does not seem like a Cardassian thing. Cure at any cost, do. yeah. Right, or or if Cardassian doctors, their version of the Hippocratic Oath maybe is do no harm for Cardassians, yeah. but I don't <laughs> think they necessarily care that much about other alien species. But but what is what is even more interesting about that to me is that Krell Misset is introduced as this character that has gone to Federation medical conferences and is well respected outside of Cardassia. Yeah, uh, he knows what do no harm means to to a Federation doctor, and and he is actively using that information against the doctor to try and convince him to do something yeah. the doctor doesn't want to do. That's really, to me, the first indication that Krell said is not only not a nice guy, he's actively trying to manipulate the situation. Yeah, and I think the doctor recognizes that fairly, fairly quickly. Um, one of the other interesting moments of the episode to me is Seven of Nine when uh, – she has this uh, line at one point, uh, the Borg are feared for assimilating knowledge. Uh, that's exactly what Krell has done, and uh, it's tolerated. And she's very confused about why there is a difference there. And uh, the episode doesn't say the obvious thing that, well, no, this is not tolerated in the Federation. We would never – but – and again, certainly we didn't know that he was using that he caught his medical research through questionable means. He was he presented as a great scientist, but I also wonder if it's a case where the Federation doctors who had him at the conferences decided not to look too closely at the research. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that to me that that's interesting because Seven of Nine obviously doesn't know or doesn't quite understand the the nuances of of alpha quadrant politics but at the same time she she's not wrong to to treat them all with yeah. the same brush i mean the federation knows what the cardassians deal is and and while there are nice cardassians i do think that there is a strain of cardassians are captives to a, an, immor an immoral system and you can't really trust them because they all have some degree of stockholm syndrome i mean not to put too fine a point on it, but to this to the same way that it's very difficult for us uh, to as as Americans, as whoever you know, Westerners living under capitalism, to um, realize or understand all the time the ways in which we are Stockholm syndrome to to this uh, economic and and political system, and so it's kind of a similar thing in a way. Yeah, if you think about. Your lifestyle very much. The phone that I am talking on is the product of horrible working conditions and near slave labor if it's not actually. And when you think about that, oh, fuck. So you don't think about that. So, yeah, uh, I, I guess the Federation scientists are trying their damnedest not to think about it. Uh, be and yeah, and there's and there's so many there's so many uh, uh, you know examples of that. I mean, one of my favorite things is quinoa that everyone loves to eat is essentially like – 
you know, people that, that rely on that for their diet in South America can't actually afford it. And they're, they're like having nutritional difficulties because, you know, rich Westerners essentially want to eat quinoa. Um, but we don't think about that. I love quinoa. <laughs> um, yeah, it's partially a, I, 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 Deep Space Nine, I think, was a dark look at some of the more political things of the Federation. I think at times Voyager tries to do that with Federation niceness uh, because the Federation is super nice and friendly and all of that. It's root beer as uh, Deep Space Nine uses the metaphor. Uh, But I think that – I mean this episode certainly portrays somebody who slipped through the cracks of Federation niceness, didn't they? I mean nobody – Nobody who invited him to a conference said, yeah, but you did all that experimentation on all those people or where did you get your research from? How did you figure this out? Uh, Nobody is asking that too much. Uh, And obviously we don't have any of the perspectives of the people who invited him to the conference, but it does seem like they – there are people on Voyager who knew what he did, and so there are people in the Alpha Quadrant who knew what he did, and so what he did is out in the world. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, you know, to, to your point as well, you know, once they once the Bajoran uh, crew member makes that, that accusation, yeah. uh, you know, at first they say, well, there's no evidence of that. No one's ever heard that. But then they do an investigation. They they uh, they uncover some evidence, and that is yeah. Star Trek at its best, where they're just taking everything um, they believe, everybody, everyone in good faith, and we're going to figure this out. And I think it's a really nice moment as well. Yeah, but then that implies that, uh, and again, it could have that. Then that implies that the people who went on this mission with him and reported it, their report wasn't wide, widely spread, right? Like he was not. One would think that immediately after that mission, this guy and everybody else who was on that, they told everybody that they could. They told their commanding officers. They told, uh, oh, no, that was a Maki raid. But you think the Maki would do its best to propagate that either way. I guess maybe that's, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's part of the issue that uh, the people who were talking about how bad uh, Krell was were Maki. And it's not like we trust the Maki and they have a vested interest in discrediting the scientist. Maybe there is a bit of boys club stuff going on. I mean, I think that's certainly true. And I think the the flip side of that as well is just going by what we saw over seven seasons of, of Deep Space Nine, how many Krell missiles yeah. are there out there? Uh, there? There might be 500. You can't unveil the horrors of all of them at the same time it's going to take many many years of of painstaking historical research and and convincing people to 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 go and say yes every single one of these people were were evil or yeah. did horrible things it's we, just going to take a very long time i don't i don't think that you know when, when did we come to to full grasp of the horrors of the holocaust i mean it probably never. took <laughs> yeah true yeah never because it's happening again you know i mean i think that there's there's something to be said for that for sure um and yes i mean that that is a very good point you and i and everybody who's listening to this has heard of the name dr mengele that's probably the only evil nazi scientist that i know i could not name you a single person who worked because mengele did not work alone i can't name you a single person who worked with him and they are just right. as guilty and evil and horrible Right. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's you could tell point. me about the brilliant career of so and so, and he was a doctor in Germany, and here are all the advances he did, and wow, I'll be impressed. And then you tell me he was at Auschwitz. I've never heard of him before. Krell could be one of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, that that is is a good. I think that's a good place to leave this episode, of course, because it it makes it very very ambiguous as to how yeah. you ever do anything and and that's kind of a big message for a episode of star trek voyager but i think it's right i mean yeah it, it raises a question of of how how there is no there is nothing you can ever do that is like 100 percent completely pure. uncompromised yeah pure and where do you draw that line? Everyone has to draw that line at a different place. And, they, you know, you have to sleep at night. So, yeah, I think got to do something. I think the closest that the episode has to an answer to this unanswerable question, yeah, is you do the best you can. And when you, you, you question your conscience every moment, you do your damnedest to search your own soul and see how you feel about these things. And if it's something is bothering it, you have to do whatever difficult steps it takes to make it right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And I think that's a good place to leave this episode. If you have any thoughts on either of the episodes we just discussed, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. As we mentioned earlier, we do have a Patreon. It supports this podcast and our other podcast tuning in. We are currently covering the fifth season of the x-files it's a good week we've got a lone gunman origin story this week so check that out at tuninginshow.com and check out our patreon at patreon.com slash truck about show facebook twitter instagram we're there truck about show is our username and as always please leave us an apple podcast review for this podcast all right next week we're going to be talking about the voyager episodes 30 days and counterpoint